0: This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business.
1: Today in our Toil and Trouble Employment Law slot, I'm talking to Duncan Cotterill Senior Associate Jeremy Ansell about two bugbear issues for employers, trial periods and interim reinstatement that have arisen in recent ERA cases. Jeremy, um, trial periods are a bane for employers, aren't they?
2: They often are data and we often see employers try and rely on these trial period provisions but get them incorrect. An interesting case came out recently, it's the case of Escadero versus Oak Grove Dental Limited. Um, this was about an employee who worked in a dental centre down south, Ms Escadero. She was employed on an agreement that contained a trial period provision, which is fairly standard for an employer of 19 or fewer. Um, and issues arose in terms of her relationship with the practice manager at the office. So what happened was the her and the practice manager would often have disagreements about various things, and Ms Escadero. Rather than addressing these issues directly uh, with the employer, she would often speak in Spanish to other colleagues and get quite upset. Where the employer landed with this was the only way to resolve the interpersonal issue between Ms Escudero and the practice manager was to terminate her employment and to rely on the 90 day trial period provision. So she was issued with notice of termination. Where this became an issue, is that the employer mucked up the trial period application and they calculated the days based on the number of days that she had actually attended work during during the period of employment, which was only 35. She was a part-time worker and there was a Christmas close down and various things. So the employer incorrectly thought uh, she's still within the 90 days because she's actually only attended work on 35
1: mm. of those days. That's interesting. So. Just in a normal circumstance, if, if your employer takes a you for whatever reason, they can actually dispense with your services in 90 days?
2: If there's a correctly applied trial period clause, absolutely. Right. There's a few um, conditions though, so the trial period provision must be included in a written employment agreement and that has to be signed by both parties before the first day of employment. Right. Often they're undone on that basis. It's not sufficient to give an employee an agreement and say, sign it at some point after you've started. It must be in place before the first day of work. So that's one um, condition. Another is that the person cannot previously have been employed uh, by that employer. If they have, you cannot use a trial period. And another um, condition is that the employer must have 19 or fewer employees. So in the case of Miss Escudero, the ERA looked at it, they found the dismissal under the purported trial period provision was completely invalid, hadn't been done correctly. So then they had to look at why she'd actually been dismissed, which was due to this interpersonal relationship without any process, and they found that that in and of itself was certainly not a reason to dismiss an employee.
1: Right. So you actually can't just take against someone and get rid of them if you don't like them. You do actually have to follow the process, but there has, there's a chance that they'll look at the reason and they'll find the reason lacking?
2: I, I, sorry, only if the trial period's not been correctly applied. I see. So if it's all in place, it's 19 right. or fewer, there's a written employment agreement in place that contains it, the person hasn't been employed there before, you can dismiss for whatever reason you like and rely right. on the trial period. And in that situation, the employee cannot bring a personal grievance for unjustified dismissal. They can for other reasons, but not for an unjustified dismissal. However, if you bugger up the trial period piece (laughs) and it's not a valid trial period, then they can um, unpack it and look at whether it was a justified or unjustified dismissal in usual circumstances.
1: I'm just actually amazed that this survived six years of a Labour-led government. I mean, this is something unions don't Mm. like, do they? They don't.
2: No, they don't appear to like it. Um, it's right. often one of these employment law issues that becomes a, a bit of a political football. We know yeah. that National enact are, are looking to scrap trial periods altogether, but they have been um, retained for, for 19 or fewer at, at the moment yeah, they are. Right. Yeah. But
1: the, the, the moral of this story is to get your paperwork and your processes down pat.
2: Absolutely, and you run into massive difficulties um, if you don't get that right. And it is something that we see time and time again with employer clients who aren't aware of all those various conditions.
1: Right. And so what is the difference between a trial period and a probationary period?
2: Mm. It's a really good question and it's one we get a lot of confusion about um, mm. amongst employers. So if you're an employer with 19 or fewer, your best option is going to be to use a trial period. However, if you have 20 or greater employees, you still can have what's called a probationary period and they're, they're actually different despite the, the um, similarities. So under a probationary period, you can still go through a process and you can raise concerns with an employee uh, within either a three or a six month period about their performance or their conduct. And you can dismiss them within that period. But what you have to do under a probationary period is you must go through some form of process. You must put them on notice about what the concerns are. You must give them an opportunity to respond to those concerns and give them an opportunity to improve and then make a decision. Um, whereas under a trial period, you're not required to go through any of those steps.
1: But, I mean, what you're saying about a probationary period sounds a bit like a normal process, doesn't
2: it? Uh, it is, that's right. But um, it, it's it's less extensive than a normal right. termination process. I see. But there is still a degree of at least making the employee aware of what the concerns are. Whereas a trial period... And, an employer can go to an employee on day 89 and say, we're terminating under the trial period provision, that's it, you're not required to give any reason.
1: Right, that's very interesting. Now let's talk about the second um, case, which is a case of interim reinstatement. Quite an unusual one to come before the ERA, I understand.
2: It is, so interim reinstatement is when an employee is um, dismissed from their employment for whatever reason and they go and seek a court uh, directive that they be put back in the workplace pending the outcome to a a main or a substantive hearing further down the track. So what happened in the case here of um, Mr Clark versus Habitat for Humanity is we had Mr Clark who was a general manager, Habitat for Humanity are involved in providing housing solutions, finding accommodation for uh, lower income people. In the course of his duties as GM, Mr Clark was responsible for acquiring um, property from time to time. They would then go into partnership with council and establish housing there. Uh, and he reported to a board. It transpires that he learned of a property that they were interested in. He told the board a little bit about the property um, and so they were at least aware of that. However he ended up signing and agreeing to an agreement for sale and purchase for the property. He told the board initially it was a conditional offer, which it isn't. There's a a difference between a conditional (laughs) offer and and an agreement for sale and purchase. Um, So to cut a long story short, the board developed concerns that he had acted outside his delegations by um, agreeing this ASP agreement for sale and purchase and ended up going through a process and dismissing him on the grounds of uh, serious misconduct.
1: Is there much more to the story? Because that doesn't seem like, I mean, that seems like a mistake.
2: That's what he argued. He argued it was a genuine mistake. Yeah. He said if he'd acted outside his delegations, he was genuinely sorry for that. He also pointed to a property he'd previously acquired for Habitat for Humanity back in 2020, where he'd gone through a similar process. Right. Um, The board as it transpired were concerned about the wording of the due diligence clause and they actually ended up pulling out of the purchase so they never acquired the property but they still felt that he'd gone outside his um, delegations but uh, as you can see from the case he applied for interim uh, reinstatement and was put back in uh, by the ERA.
1: This is amazing, really. I mean, it's because his his dispute is with the board, so he doesn't have to work with the board every day, right, that he'd want to go back in, because most Mm. employees surely would not want to go back in with the person that...
2: Absolutely. Yeah, what we find is not a lot of employees who have been dismissed will want to go back, so they don't claim um, either interim or permanent reinstatement. It is the primary remedy for an unjustified dismissal, but a lot of employees want to cut their losses and move on. but. In Mr Clark's case, he argued that he still had sufficient rapport um, with the board members. He said the relationship wasn't um, frayed. He was genuinely uh, remorseful for his oversight or Mm -hmm. acting outside his delegations. Um, And he said he had quite collegial relationships with other colleagues as well. And the ERA applied, the Employment Relations Authority applied all the various tests as they're required to do. And they found that the, the balance of convenience weighed in his favour and that it was... Um, less inconvenient for the employer to have to have him back in the workplace than it was for Mr Clark to remain out of work for a, a long period of time until we get to the main hearing.
1: Right and has the main hearing happened yet? Sure,
2: It hasn't and the way we are with time frames that will probably be some months
1: away unless it
2: settles but uh, it, as far as we know and unless the case settles he will be reinstated into the workplace until the main hearing so the ERA haven't found that the dismissal was unjustified they've just found that there's an arguable case uh, that it might be and I guess the um, the lesson or the learning there for employers is that you can dismiss somebody under the grounds of serious misconduct think um, you've got the strongest case in the world and the ERA can in some circumstances put them back into the workplace on an interim basis
1: amazing that's fascinating thanks very much Jeremy
3: While most of North Island has been singing rain, rain, go away, one man and his business hopes the sun stays away. Blunt Umbrellas co-founder Greg Bredner joins me now. Welcome, Greg.
4: Thank you. Good Thank to be here. You.
3: I'm glad someone's been enjoying all this rain recently. Yeah,
4: it's been crazy, hasn't it?
3: <laughs> so, I mean, sticking with that rain sort of theme, tell me about the seasonality of Blunt umbrellas. Sort of how much do you benefit from sort of the rainy summer that we've had?
4: It makes a big difference. Um, for us, it's really about preparing for a rainy day, though, because our products, I guess, require an investment. Hmm. So people aren't going to buy it on a whim unless they really know about the brand and trust it. So, um, So, yeah, it's really about putting that work in so that when it does rain, people make that investment and go for it. But, yeah, you definitely need a a good period of rain or a good season for people to actually want to make that investment, which Auckland definitely has.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, umbrellas have been around for so long. What makes a blunt umbrella unique?
4: Um, well, it's really been engineered to within an inch of its life. Um, <laughs> um, back in the day, I was just really annoyed in London, walking around, getting my eye nearly poked out. So it was really about the points on the umbrellas to start with. And then working out, well, how can I actually make it better in terms of the user experience? And, and what I worked out was that the canopy on the umbrella if it's pulled really tight, it will act like a wing in the wind as opposed to a big floppy sail. So really about just a better engineered product that gives you a better sensory experience, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So just when you use it, it just feels solid. It sounds awesome with the rain on the roof of it. So it makes you feel like you're in a cocoon and all those feelings of security and it just makes you feel yeah better using it. It gives you joy.
3: Oh that's um, that's wonderful to hear. I mean nothing's worse than sort of feeling like your umbrella's gonna pack yeah. in on you or yeah. blow you down the street or something like that. Um your, your business is seventeen years old. It's it's sort of nearly old enough to vote in some senses. Mm. What's has um, been the biggest challenge I suppose?
4: I think um just the transitions. Like every business starts in a certain mode. Um you're just trying to I guess make ends meet, just to mm-hmm. get something viable. And then to actually go through and get the sophistication and get all your systems in place and actually to take those steps up the up the ladder. And I think when you're doing it for the first time, it's like you're just learning everything the hard way. So that's really difficult. And, um, yeah, just, just getting the right people in the right places, I think, is, is actually a really, really hard one. Mm-hmm. So um, so we've been through all those challenges. And um, I think the era that we've been through, like um, the resources weren't so available as what they are today. So it felt like we've sort of learned everything the hard way. So that's why I guess it has taken us a little while to get to the level we are now. But in saying that, we've actually done it the right way in some ways.
3: And what's been some of the biggest milestones in the company's life?
4: Um, I don't know. There's lots of little wins. Like everyone thinks, everyone looks for the big win to say, "I've finally made it." But um, I don't know. I just think you get some articles written about you early days in um, big magazines like Wired Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. And just to see your name up there, that was that was a bit of a thrill. Um, Getting Karen Walker on board to do a collab early days was really amazing because we really looked up to her and what she's done globally with her brand. Mm -hmm. So just to get her validation was phenomenal. yeah, and I think um, taking on the markets ourselves, like to really feel like a truly global brand and just get the wins in these other markets. Um, Australia's nearly getting to the size of New Zealand, which is really exciting. So um, just, just to have that, it just feels like we've grown up. Yeah.
3: And um, how important is sort of word of mouth? You know, people going, oh, I've got this great umbrella, you should actually buy one.
4: Huge, yeah. It's everything, really. So that's what we try to instill in every market. So it's, um, it's just about the trust and just people to get their understanding around that investment over time like if you'd own a blunt for three, four years and get that amazing experience out of it, in the meantime you would have bought, you know, 10 crappy umbrellas mm. and um, spent more money and had a bad experience. So people need to go through that to tell other people that they trust to, um, to actually make the investment, to buy it, yeah.
3: And um, what's the plan for the future, sort of? You got some sort of expansion on the horizon?
4: Yeah, well, we're always growing. So new markets are um, taking on new markets ourselves, away from distributors has been a big step. So we recently took on the u.s market after having a distributor there since 2012 so just steps like that are great for growth but i'm um, going beyond umbrellas is, is the next big one which is um yeah really big for us like umbrellas have been our focus for a long time so it's sort of known mm-hmm. as this umbrella company but we're moving to more of a, um, a design company i guess by mm-hmm. doing other products but we've just i guess reverse engineered what worked so well for the umbrella and applying it to something new so watch out for that um sometime next year
3: well, what more can you tell us about that nothing else But <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll check back with you next year yeah, then yeah and um do you foresee any sort of challenges i suppose changing from sort of blunt umbrellas and sort of an umbrella sort of base company to sort of blunt made i suppose and a more design firm
4: um there's challenges like we're doing a rebrand at the moment which really resets all that so we've gone really deep on what we're actually about as a business through our values right through our design philosophy and everything like that so internally, we're really we know exactly what we're about, mm. which is really exciting. But to communicate that is um, is another another thing. But um, we've got the tools, and there's no reason why we can't do it. And the reality is, we're we're really quite small on the global stage. So to do this now, before we actually get get that bigger growth, is actually a really good time to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: And um, what sort of advice would you give someone else sort of looking to follow in your footsteps, or even yourself looking back?
4: I think um, the bits I got right, I think was the vision. Like for the product, was always the top thing for me so the vision of what that product could be so actually setting in your mind's eye what success could look like for that and really do the work on that so you're not just hoping you actually can actually picture it like you talk to any successful person remember seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger do a YouTube clip or something and he said it was just all about vision he just knew exactly what he wanted to achieve so I think that if you have that then you'll find the way there because your energy will be pointing in that direction and anyone else that comes on that journey will, will know the path as well so just being really crystal clear with that, I think that's a really, really important component because there's 50,000 other bits that need to be right, but I think that is the seed for sure.
3: Mm-hmm. And yeah. you came from sort of an engineering and design background, so did you have some business mentors early early in your stage? Not really. Yeah. I think
4: um, my family's been entrepreneurial, so sort of self-employed, mm-hmm. so I just had a lot of input on that and just, I guess, had a holistic sort of um, exposure to what business looks like, from finance through marketing and all that. So, um, so I think just having that broader that brought a background really did help but also having the depth in one area to actually make a difference so yeah and that's the design side which i just love wonderful
3: well thank you Mm. so much for joining me today thank you yeah great
5: Alex Kendall is the founder and CEO of Wave AI, an autonomous vehicle startup based in London, which is one of the front-runners globally in that space. Despite living in the UK, Kendall remains a proud New Zealander, and he recently had a visit from Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, who went for a test drive in one of the self-drive vehicles. Alex joins me now from the UK. Welcome, Alex. Hi. So uh, let's start with the Bill Gates visit, which is back in March now. Um, How did that come about?
6: Hey, well, look, uh, as you can imagine, Bill is, uh, remains at the forefront of technology, and um, Microsoft is, uh, has been really pushing the boundaries of artificial intelligence. So he was pretty interested to see what the latest and greatest was and reached out to us uh, to see if he'd come for a ride. It was a, a pretty surreal experience. We picked him up from his hotel in central London and uh, drove on a route we'd never been, uh, been before, but uh, drove autonomously through the heart of London past you know, really complex and dynamic scenarios. And it was, a it was an absolute blast.
5: Were you nervous? <laughs>
6: um, the, the interesting experience was I was, uh, you know, I was explaining of course, how the car was behaving and driving through the, um, through the, the heart of London, but also having to uh, answer some pretty, uh, in-depth and complicated questions from Bill. It was incredible. He went, uh, really deep into the technology from the get-go and, uh, I was pretty impressed by the level of understanding he had.
5: Uh, In his blog, Gates described the ride as memorable, and he said he believes we'll reach a tipping point on autonomous vehicles uh, within the next decade. What's your thoughts on that?
6: The autonomous driving industry is a, I think it's an exciting time because we've now got, um, uh, we now have commercial services that have launched. Uh, But they're in very constrained environments, so places like uh, San Francisco and some other U.S. cities and a a few other places around the world. But they're the kind of autonomous driving services that only operate in some, uh, you know, within a few city blocks or within certain hours of the day and areas that have been very heavily mapped. Um, What we've been working on at Wave is a, a completely different approach to the problem that learns to drive and trains an artificial intelligence system to be able to understand the road and make its own decisions, including driving different vehicles in different places that it hasn't necessarily seen before. Um, we believe this is an approach that's going to allow autonomous driving to scale globally and, and what we're really pushing for is uh, technology that can be the first of 100 cities, including I hope uh, bringing it to, to New Zealand sometime soon. Um, uh, but I'd go as far as saying I think artificial intelligence is going to be the tipping point that gets uh, autonomous driving from these constrained, small-scale, you know, classical robotics deployments where they're told how to drive to a point where it can deal with the um, variety that we see on the road globally. That's that AI tipping point that's going to let us get there, and I, you know, I I think we're on the forefront of it.
5: It's a lot of um, discussion, obviously, around the safety of AI at the moment. What's, What's your thoughts on that?
6: Yeah, so it's a, I mean, it is such a transformative technology. Artificial intelligence is going to um, accelerate almost anything we want to do. And, um, you know, I can talk more about the autonomous driving pace in particular, where it's going to allow us to have a much more effective um, transportation of people and goods in our cities. And, um, you know, if you look at some of the impact that might have, it's going to, um, we have, 1.3 million people a year die on our roads each year. It's going to address that. It's going to um, be able to turn car parks to green parks. It's going to be able to um, allow us to uh, make mobility much more accessible. So it's the impact's going to be extraordinary. But the the challenge is that um you know the, the challenge is that with that level of impact you've got to have a really high degree of trust with the technology. Um, so, in, in, you know, how you how do you build trust with a system? It's about being able to set and meet expectations over time. And so the key thing there is that we don't overblow the expectations of AI, and um, I think it's really important to talk about its limitations and and where it might need further development. Um, but then also, when it does become to a point where it's it's really effective, we should be able to safely prove that and be able to. Um, uh, have a level of confidence that lets us deploy it safely. That's what's going to create trust and ultimately widespread adoption and value for society.
5: Just wanted to go back to your Kiwi roots. So um, you were brought up in Canterbury, I understand. Can you tell us a bit about that?
6: Yeah, I was fortunate enough to grow up in Christchurch. Um, I, uh, I have some really fond memories there and, and try and get back frequently to visit my family that still live there. Um, but whether it was the sense of adventure I was able to attain yeah with my dad going to the Southern Alps uh, or you know perhaps the the friends and 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 culture I had growing up there it was a it was a treat.
5: Um, where did you get the idea for your startup? how did How did you come about starting up a company from it too?
6: So I, I grew up in Christchurch. I went to the University of Auckland to study uh, mechatronics engineering. and when I finished my studies there, I um you know I, I, I was really fascinated with seeing what you could do with, Robotics and, and embodied AI systems, and um, and was fortunate enough to win a scholarship to the University of Cambridge, uh, the Will Fisher Scholarship, uh, which enabled me to to do a PhD. And that was a chance to have three or four years where there was really no constraints. I was in an environment surrounded by some of the most uh, incredible people in the world, and I could just sit back and and you know really look at the problem in a in a new way. And it was that period of study where. Uh, I was fortunate enough to develop some algorithms that for the first time showed us how to build machines that could see for themselves, understand uh, where they are, what's around them, what's gonna happen next and do so with uh, with machine learning. It was that technology that led me to believe, actually we can create robots that can have a level of intelligence that means that they can operate in unconstrained environments. They can uh, do so in a safe and, and scalable manner. At the time, um, this was 2017, we'd just seen all of the big technology companies—Google, uh, um, General Motors, uh, Apple, uh, a, a number of big tech companies, and and some other uh, startups—raised billion-dollar funding rounds and all claimed that autonomous driving was a year away. And so it was maybe a little bit uh, crazy at the time to say, "Look, I want to create a startup and and go against these giants." But what I'd really seen is that machine learning could solve complex problems that that were you know unthinkable. Before before this technology, uh, things like seeing the game of Go, the hardest board game in the world, that we could build machine learning um, systems that could beat the world champion at that. Uh, or um, and, and so off the back of that, I was convinced that if we have the computer vision and and under, uh, understanding technology that lets us bring this to actual real life setting, this will be the way that we'll be able to build a scalable autonomous uh, autonomous solutions, and so. That was really caused the genesis of Wave, and um, you know we were able to raise a small amount of seed funding, got a house next to the university, and started building our first autonomous car in the garage, and it all, uh, you know, it's all, all taken off since then.
5: What's been the hardest thing you've found as an entrepreneur, and in, in what is your first business, I presume?
6: It is my first business. I, I was fortunate enough to spend a little bit of time in Silicon Valley and saw some of the startup ecosystem there, but it is my first business and the rate of change has been extraordinary. In the you know, almost six years I've been doing this, every year has been a completely different, I guess, job for me. At the start, I wrote the initial code and got the robot to start doing its thing. Um, then it was all about raising funding, finding commercial partners. Uh, you know, today we're fortunate enough to have started commercial trials with uh, two of the largest grocery companies in the UK, uh, Ocado Group and, and Asda. Uh, and so we actually have our system uh, trialed doing grocery delivery to residents of London uh, with a safety operator behind the wheel as we're still developing the system. But, you know, finding commercial partners, uh, of course, building a team. Uh, we've uh, hired a team of 200 people today and, 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 of course, ensuring that we have an environment that, that can really let uh, you know the incredible people that I, I get to work with excel. These are all completely different challenges, and I'm sure next year will be uh, different as well. Um, so I've, I've I've loved that growth, but it's uh, it's been an absolute roller coaster.
5: Do you have business mentors in to you know help you on the business jargon as it were? <laughs>
6: um, yeah, no. Look, a lot of it is is learning the hard way, but yes, uh, fortunate enough to be surrounded by some um, some incredible uh, incredible mentors, um, whether that's, you know, some of our investors like, uh, you know, Sir Richard Branson or, um, Yann LeCun or uh, people, uh, Yann LeCun was uh, one of the pioneers of machine learning, deep learning, uh, or some other people that have, have really inspired what we're doing or, or people that I work day to day with. Um, yeah, I think I, I really do firmly believe that, uh, you end up, um, Gravitating to and you know, challenging yourself with the, the culture of the people you surround yourself with, um, so I think it's it's crucial that you end up surrounding yourself with people that uh, you know align with your values and can you know, ultimately challenge you, um, and and you can learn from them. So that, that's what I've I've tried to do.
5: Um, you've described autonomous vehicles as the space race for your generation. Why do you think it is so important?
6: I think it's um, I, well. I mentioned some of the the things that the that autonomous driving is going to be able to give society, but um, you know, honestly, I think if we look at what sets the human race apart from other species in the animal kingdom, it's our ability to create tools, and whether this is the wheel, calculators, X rays, you know, tooling is what really lets us live the the prosperous lives we have today, and um, and and. If we think about what the next evolution of that is, I, I think artificial intelligence gives us that that next opportunity. A lot of the talk about artificial intelligence, whether you've used some of the large language models like ChatGPT, you know, this is just the beginning. This is a ability. This is these are systems that let you interface with knowledge, search the internet, recommend uh, different uh, different approaches to whatever you're trying to do. You know, that is incredible. But for me, the the next wave beyond that is going to be embodied AI. Bring AI into the physical world, we live in the physical world and um, having tools and machines, intelligent machines that can really go and um, uh, you know, give us more agency in our world in the case of autonomous driving, allow us to have more safe, sustainable and accessible transportation, to be able to um, you know, trust these machines to, um, to really move us around and give us that, that freedom and exploration that transportation gives us. Uh, I think this is gonna be extraordinary so for me, it's the it's the next big opportunity to advance the the prosperity of the world, and um, that's you know, that's why I'd, I'd maybe compare it to the space race. One interesting thing is that the space race um, uh, that you know happened in the 1960s, It was roughly a decade to get the first human on the on the moon. Um, the cost of that program in today's dollars was about uh, uh, you know was in the order of um, uh, three hundred billion. And 300 billion dollars. So it was an extraordinary amount of money and time that, that went into into that. And if you look at autonomous driving, I think in terms of time and and money and effort, we're we're you know we're maybe a a, a third of the way into that, but it's just accelerating at a, an enormous pace now with what we're seeing with these recent artificial intelligence breakthroughs. So yeah, there are some some fun comparisons you can do, but ultimately I think it's going to have. Uh, Probably the biggest impact on our on our lives out of you know, anything that we see today, and um, that kind of disruption, I think you can equate to things like the industrial revolution. But it's going to it's going to come uh, at a at a at a really exciting pace. Um, so I'm I feel thrilled to be part of it.
5: You talked about the grocery retailers. Where are you at in terms of commercialization?
6: The challenge with autonomous driving is that uh, not only do you have to develop the technology, but you have to develop the, the business model. Um, you know, how we see it is that we want to build the artificial intelligence technology that you can put in uh, you know, across many applications, whether it's ride hailing uh, in London, grocery delivery in, in Paris or, uh, or public transport in New Zealand, like all of these different applications, we should have an AI system that can adapt to them all. Um, but in order to bring this to market, we need to work with vehicle manufacturers, we need to work with uh, vehicle operators, uh, and that's what we're really building up with these first grocery trials. So today uh, we have systems that we retrofit onto uh, onto the vehicles that, that our grocery partners operate, and we do last mile grocery delivery where uh, uh, the grocery is, is uh, driven autonomously from the fulfilment centre to people's homes. Um, now the next step in that, of course, is uh, seeing it more deeply integrated into a, into an auto, into a, a, a vehicle rather than being retrofitted. Uh, and of course, um, improving the the safety through the experience and the data we're collecting to the point where we can um, operate those vehicles in an autonomous setting. Um, but I'd love to see it expanded to other applications as well. And as I said, I think this can be a really intelligent and adaptable autonomous driving platform.
5: So you've just hired someone to deal with the um, automobile manufacturers, haven't you, in terms of trying to get some partnerships, is that right?
6: Yeah, that's right. Uh, our team's always growing and uh, we've recently brought on uh, a, a really fantastic colleague, Frank, who's our Director of Automotive Partnerships. Um, but that's gonna be an area of growth for us.
5: Do you see this, um, a world where you're going to have um, consumers driving around or, or being driven around in, in self-drive cars then?
6: Yeah, I do. Uh, I think, so consumer-owned autonomous vehicles, uh, they, they they will exist. I think they're gonna come after fleet-operated autonomous vehicles because when you're pioneering a nascent technology, um, you know I think it's really important that you're able to operate it in a um, in a really well managed way. And I think the way to start is with commercial fleets. Um, but of course, over time, as the technology matures and as uh, you know, as as we get more reliability in the technology, I think naturally that will move to uh, products that are available to consumers. Today, uh, consumers can purchase um, what's called level two or uh, you know, user and command autonomy. It's driver assistance systems that might help you uh, drive along the highway and you still need to be responsible and liable for the driving, um, but it might assist you to do the, the, the lane keeping or stopping in traffic. Uh, but what we're building is a, uh, a level four or a non-user in charge, a, a fully autonomous system that uh, you know, when you go in the vehicle uh, as a passenger, you won't be liable for operation of the vehicle. The vehicle will be driving for you um, and to to be able to, if you want to own that uh, as a as a consumer, you know, that will exist, but I think it'll come um, some years later, but very shortly after our commercial fleet operations. That's why we're starting there.
5: What's the timeline then for, for those commercial operations? And, and then, you know, do you think consumer?
6: We're not talking specifically about a timeline uh, for a couple of reasons. I, I think the industry has um, put out many you know, quite aggressive timelines around how autonomy is going to get to scale. And, you know, uh, it's built a lot of hype and, and you know, hype cycles in the industry that I don't think have been helpful. It's also very challenging to define what a milestone is, right? Because, you know, today there are autonomous, level four autonomous driving services. If you go to a place like Phoenix in Arizona in the United States, you can download an app and you can get in a vehicle with no one in the front seat today. So it's here. Um, but is it, profitable is it scalable is it global no and so um you, you you've got to be careful in exactly how you define these milestones but for us um you know it's not going to be here tomorrow or, or, or next year it's a multi-year journey um but we're you know we're, we're we're certainly focused on getting there as fast as we can but we're we're not going to put out a date uh, until we're um, until we're really clear and sure uh that that, that it's going to ship
0: Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz.
7: Brangston Solutions co-founder Brandon Botting is with us. Now, Brandon, why did you start your business? What triggered you to do that? Um, I've spent uh,
0: nearly 12 years working in the, the merchant space, uh, travelling f- to residential, commercial, even uh, some House New Zealand or Kainga Ora jobs in my previous uh, roles. And I've always been, a, you know, on the side I've always been acutely aware of the amount of waste that uh, construction and, uh, can generate. Um, and then I think the last couple of years with the timber supply shortage has probably really kind of driven us as a business to actually do what we need to get done. It's the idea for the braces have always been, have always been in my head the last kind of four or five years. And then with the timber shortage, we just couldn't get it. We couldn't get timber. We couldn't build frames. We were struggling to get supply. And then when I really sat down and thought about what we thought, how much timber was actually being used for what is a temporary purpose, it kind of really made us go. We probably need to look at fixing this problem, um, which is how Braced On was born from uh, from the from the get go. Um, it's always been about. Yeah, it's part of a wider community of reducing waste
7: in construction, um, especially around, for us, temporary bracing. So you're focused primarily on the residential construction sector?
0: Yeah, residential was where uh, temporary bracing is probably more prevalent than necessarily commercial. Um, any timber frame building is going to have some element of uh, of, of temporary bracing, um, which is why, like I said, residential was where we saw the most need. You drive through any subdivision around Auckland, you will see Lengths of timber, propping up walls, holding walls into square and into plumb, and then it's what happens with that timber after it's it's done its purpose. Is that where we found the found the issue? Could generally uh, generally appeared, um, you know, a lot of the time it is 9045 H1 and H1.2 timber is not designed to be outside for long periods, so this timber can sit outside for maybe a couple of months, gets a little bit bent, gets a little bit warped suddenly it's not fit for the purpose that it went out to site for and the the lengths get piled to the side of the site, sit outside, gets into the job, what happens to it? Does it go to the next site? Um, a lot of the time it doesn't and a lot of the time it can go straight into the bin, into the landfill.
7: So your product will be reused for the next house on and on and on until at some point it needs to be... Dispersed up?
0: Yeah, exactly it. So that's that's why we, we chose aluminium, realistically, it was that we knew it wouldn't rust, we knew it wouldn't warp, it's you know, it's stable and it's strong. Um, so we really we kind of tested a few different a few different products and we went round and asked a few other people around what products would be suitable and aluminium tended to tick tended to tick a few of the boxes, especially around what happens to it it's at, at its end of life. Um, you can take aluminium and it's basically infinitely recyclable. So we can take those um, those braces when they reach the end of life, which could be we work on potentially a five to six uh, year lifetime on them, but the reality is it could, it could be longer as long as the, the lengths are maybe stored inside, although it doesn't make much of a difference.
7: What interest have you had so far? You started twenty twenty one. How are we going? Yeah, it's going great.
0: We've um, we're yet to really get our ball rolling. We're, like I, uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier, that change. This is a colossal change in a lot of ways. The way that it's been done since we started building stick framing in New Zealand is pieces of timber, nail them to the wall, straighten it up. So yeah, we're really bringing in something that. Um, Is completely different, and we call it a solution because it is a solution. We think it fixes a problem, and we understand that that will take time to make the impact that we want uh, into the industry. Um, So, yeah, we're getting the ball rolling. We've had some good interest from some uh, larger building companies that we're uh, hoping to do some trials on in the next uh, six to eight weeks. Um, and the support from multiple people within our industry at a, at, a, at a relatively high level has been has been really encouraging and really supportive. so yeah we're, we're geared up for we're here for the long term and we're here to make change
7: so we understand that that doesn't happen overnight and we're, we're keen to keep going. Are you looking to sign big contracts with big construction companies or are you looking for you know your um, your corner builders your ones down the street? Hey, I think there's
0: an opportunity for builders to reduce waste, no matter what size business they are, and we're happy to partner and and pair with anyone who is keen to to see where they can reduce their waste across site, especially in like I said, in regards to temporary bracing. In
7: terms of the supply of timber products. You said your company was spurred over that supply issue. The government's been focusing on the building supply sector and looking to introduce the Commerce Commission recommendations to improve the playing field. What are you noticing out there in terms of supply? Certainly with the market
0: market softening around uh, new builds, uh, supply chain issues uh, are generally returning to... Some sort of normality, especially around the basics, um, around your timber, um, your jib, your plywoods, a lot of that is um, is returning to normal, so to speak. So we're finding that it isn't so much of an issue around uh, sourcing stock as it was this time last year or the last 18 months.
7: And with the slowdown, the housing slowdown, construction slowdown, what's that mean for your business Um, For us, like I said to you before,
0: we understand that we're entering the market where it is slowing down and that reduces the amount of work out there for builders and new builds. So like I said, we're prepared to wait that out. Um, I think... What maybe separates us from other waste minimisation practices on site is that generally it's a cost centre for builders. It's uh, separate bins, it's extra things that they just have to add on to the cost of the build. Um, we like to view our product as an investment, um, and although you're you know you're paying a certain amount for a house lot, the fact that you can reuse those and the builder can continually charge that as a consumable um, allows them to actually. It doesn't actually. It's it's it doesn't cost them money in the long run. It's there to help them design to reduce waste, reduce what's going to our landfill, and then still allow the builder to to be buoyant on site margin-wise and not eat into that for
7: them. So the upfront cost might be more expensive <laughs> than your usual timber, but over the long run, you'll be saving money. Is that what you say? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we think that
0: you buy a house lot. Uh, judging from the average time a house is braced you might get 5 to 6 houses a year out of our lengths, more if you take your braces down a little bit earlier than others um and like i said we think we'll get anywhere between 5 to 6 years so your one house lot might do anywhere between 30 to to 40 houses whereas a house lot of timber is going to get you 2 3 at an absolute maximum um if you're if you're really using some pretty old grey timber that's bending and twisted and cut three times and spliced with another piece, you'll get maybe two or three houses out of it. So, yeah, there's a lot more use out of ours than than standard timber.
7: You've still got another full-time job right now. When are you hoping to go full-time with this company?
0: Uh, That's that's not a question that I'm looking at now. The business that I work for has been uh, amazingly supportive, and they have... Opened up the the channel for us to distribute through them, especially through the South Auckland area. So it's been they've been a fantastic support, and they understand that this is important to us as a business and to me personally to help reduce this problem.
7: Okay, and so you might look to enter it full time when the market's a little bit stronger. Yeah, I guess when when the business demands it. Uh, in, in some ways, I guess
0: that's. Uh, a little bit of a, a here or there answer, I guess, to your question. But at this point, um, we're just working through the business as it as it comes, and if it if it starts
7: to demand it, then we'll have to uh, to look at that more more seriously. And it's just you and your wife right now. Are you looking to scale up at all in the near term? Uh,
0: yes, we are, you know, long term once we or medium term once we kind of get our our feet under the table and see what the appetite looks for it and we are, would look to scale up uh, from there around our stock holding and how much we can distribute around the country.
7: And it, right now you're already looking at Auckland specifically and, and then extending it elsewhere around the country?
0: Yeah I guess Auckland is, um, you know, is the largest part of our uh, construction market so would obviously produce the largest amount of, uh, of waste so yeah we're targeting Auckland as a start but eventually we'd like to see us roll uh, around the country.
7: Great. Brandon Botting, thanks for your time. No problems. Thank you very much.
5: What's the potential for tech exports to drive the Kiwi economy? That's the question Aura founder and CEO Phil Thompson poses as his New Zealand software company builds export momentum. The three founders of the retail crime intelligence platform, Phil, Tom Batterbury and James Corbett, were named EY Entrepreneurs of the Year last year and are competing for the global title in Monaco. Phil Thompson joins me now. Welcome, Phil. Good morning or evening, Fiona. (laughs) How big has your company grown to?
8: Yeah, we're about 130 people now. Um, so we work with retailers right across the world. Um, started in New Zealand. And I think the first time I talked to you, um, we are just moving into Australia um, a number of years ago now. Uh, went into the US more recently um, for the last couple of years and then the, uh, about 12 months ago, entered the UK market. So we work with the likes of um, perhaps every New Zealand retailer, um, Coles Woolies uh, in Australia, uh, right with Walmart in the US and now working with Marks & Spencer in the UK as one of our flagship customers there.
5: So um, you're profitable now, I gather?
8: We were profitable before our last capital raise, actually. Um, so we saw the opportunity in front of us was too big to, to go slow on. Um, so we raised capital about uh, 18 months ago now uh, and used that to put the foot back down, uh, grow the team from went from 40 to 120 um, over just about 12 months. And uh, now for us, it's just about that. Expansion into those markets, uh, the US in particular, uh, and and starting up that UK team.
5: Um, how hard is it recruiting at that speed and also retaining the culture that, that you know you really um enjoyed at the early days?
8: Yeah, two two classic challenges. Um, you know we've got an amazing people experience team, um who have done a stellar job on on hiring, um and at that pace. Um, so again, really proud of the team that we've got. Uh, and culture, you know, we we're really deliberate around how we built the culture to start with. Um, and then there's this natural, I suppose, break points uh, in that journey, and you know we're really comfortable around that 30 to 40 person mark, um, and then going from that to 100 plus people, uh, we did, did effectively change everything we did um, again and level up. So, you know, for us, it's all about the communication piece, making sure that uh, everyone understands what you know what the culture is. Um, you know, we've got guiding principles and the like that really just assure how we work well together internally, and then how we want we want to work with our customers and partners externally as well. So. Um, uh, a lot of learnings, um, but also, you know, privilege to actually meet other um, founders from New Zealand and overseas, and that's what this week's about as well, uh, is to take those learnings and hopefully minimise uh, any mistakes uh, along that way. But, um, you know, the culture for us is great, and we've just put in a place uh, a lot of good little things, I think, that help us um, to be who we are.
5: What sort of things?
8: Uh, like I said, like guiding principles is a really big one for us. So um, how do we work together? Um, so we're really keen on things like partnering. So, you know, two people go to meetings, um, having low ego. um, So it's actually about the success of the company, not the individual. Uh, And some people, um, they don't necessarily want to be part of that uh, either. And so it's a a really um, adult conversation around if they're best placed uh, at here or somewhere else. Uh, And uh, the mission I think is super important. So we talk a lot around the impact we're having uh, on our customers. Uh, and on the community um, and we hear a lot of really good stories back from the police and the retailers around how we're helping them and I think that really keeps people motivated by seeing the impact that they can make uh, and that their work makes um, you know a lot of the time that may not be obvious for even say a software engineer to see what they're building uh, the impact on, on other people um, but for us at in, in Aura uh, it's super clear.
5: Um... In early 2022, you introduced a four and a half day working week, um, or as you said, starting the week in early. Um, Why not four days? You know, because that's typically what other people have done. So why four and a half? And and how has that worked?
8: Yeah, overall, it's worked really well. Um, It's part of our flexible working um, program. So, you know, my my background, I was a former lawyer and and so came from the corporate world and everything was very structured there. So um, I said, you you couldn't even get a haircut or go to the doctor, um, unless it was during your lunchtime or after work. So when we started Aura, we wanted to bring flexibility in. So actually we trust you to do your work um, and do it uh, around your life. Um, So that was a a real core part for us was flexibility. And then what we saw was that giving people a chance to have some additional time um, to uh, either spend with their family or do those admin tasks, um, like I mentioned, um uh, meant that one they went into the weekend um, in a better mental state, um, which meant they actually actually enjoy themselves and and unwind. And uh, when they came back to work on Monday, uh, they were they were happy <laughs> uh, and they were ready to to get going again. Um, and the reason we did four and a half days was that you know we're a global business. So if you go down to on four days, it's actually only a three day crossover um, or less sometimes um, with the other markets. So, um, we thought four and a half was actually worked really well for the company, um, and it still gave people uh, enough time um, to to unwind.
5: How have you measured whether it's worked or not?
8: Well, we looked at a number of measures, um, happiness um, being one of them, uh, impact um, of work, and then there are opportunities to do things like deep work. So, you know, shorter work week for us is part of that wider program. Um, so, you know, we've been doing things this year, even around how to reduce more meetings. So, um, combining a few different team meetings, for instance. And again, when we've got teams now in the UK and the US, um, we've got to be careful how much we ask of them um, to be joining meetings after hours um, with, with the New Zealand team uh, and, and the like, so, and vice versa. So um, for us, you know, there's a number of different levers we're pulling, um, but what we're seeing through that, through that data and, and through a lot of stories as well, is just people are, are, are amazed at what they can um, do and feel when they've got a little bit more time, um, particular things like families. Uh, um, uh, and then also that comes back um, to us as well in the sense of that they um, they they stay longer, um, they put more effort in, uh, and they're willing to um, to give and take as well with the company.
5: So is there anything else on the HR front, then? Um, you've got um, parental leave policies, for example, that are um, you know a bit more generous than, than the norm?
8: Yeah, another thing that we reviewed um, as we scaled the company, and we you know, we'd always been more progressive around parental leave than what the standard was for the size of the company we were at. Uh, and this time around, it was a chance for us to, again, to sort of do a bit of a reset on that, um, extend things like um, paid parental leave, um, both for uh, the the birth parent as well as the supporting parent. Um, and uh, other things, you know, simple almost, but just providing some, some food packages um, Uh, You know, I've got three kids now and um, my wife's an absolute saint. Um, And actually things like flowers aren't that useful when you're trying to feed um, hungry mouths and and, and yourself. Um, So we're just looking at more practical things to do uh, as well as support. So um, being a new parent in particular can be super hard. So giving them the chance to um, have some professional um, support or advice um, that we pay for. Uh, again, it just made that whole transition easier uh, and also means that they're excited to come back to work um, when time's right for them as well.
5: Just want to look at the bigger tech sector picture now, um, Phil. Um, the tech sector is, you know, the second largest um, export sector in New Zealand now. Um, what do you think is driving that growth?
8: I think a big, a big part of it um, that I'm seeing is just the chance to go global faster. Um, you know, it is weightless export you can click a button and deploy into the UK market um, without even having to be there. Um, you know, over time, you obviously, you do want to be in those markets if you're supporting customers, uh, but you know, it's it's you can replicate it pretty quickly um, and with not a lot of change as well. So I reckon key part is just that ease. Um, and for New Zealand, I think we're actually great at looking at problems and figuring out uh, how to solve them with technology. And uh, a lot of the companies in particular that I've seen, us included, you know, often we're just, we're we're digitizing a process that for us appears inefficient, uh, or, you know, you question, why is it still done on pen and paper? You know, why hasn't someone actually gone and done that? And we look around the world and go, oh, actually no one is looking at that piece, maybe because it seems too simple. Um, You know, and I think New Zealand's a great example of some of those tech companies and software in particular, that are just solving problems and then being able to deploy that around the world. And being a small country, I think is a massive advantage for us. You know, we can test things here, um, you know, had a great partnership with New Zealand Police for a number of years around testing that innovation technology and then taking that to the world. Um, uh, and it's it's too small to stay in New Zealand. Um, you know, when you look at someone like Australia, you know, they've got a great um, tech industry, but a number of those companies can afford to just stay in Australia. Stay in Australia. So they don't necessarily look um, as quickly as going overseas. Whereas just for every New Zealand technology company I speak to, you know, they're on or about to go on a plane, um, to go and check out a new market uh, or, or see their customers on the market. I think it's fantastic. I do, see, I do think it's the future for New Zealand. Um,
5: do you think uh, it can hit the number
8: one spot? Uh, I mean, I'd love to see it. I, I think you know, technology is taking over the world in, in a positive way. And even when you just look at the opportunity it provides uh, around things like income, um, you know, if we can get more people who aim the starting salary now for a software developer that's done 12-week courses... Um, close to twice the the minimum wage um, you know that's a chance to to bring people uh, either out of poverty or provide them opportunities they wouldn't normally have uh, and that raises our GDP it raises taxes it means that we can provide a better country and society um, for everyone so uh, yeah it's something I'm, I'm super passionate about and the more we go on this journey um, you know the more I'm starting to speak out um, about what the opportunity is for New Zealand uh, and then also I think there's a chance for us to to go faster as a country as well.
5: Is there any one thing you think that could be done to help um, tech companies, you know, um, grow faster?
8: Uh, two, two that come to mind. One is people. Uh, so, you know, and there's now programs coming into play um, with the digital ITP as an example around actually trying to fund getting more people into the tech industry, particularly um, adding more diversity to the tech industry, which is great. Uh, and the second part is just um, success, uh, so I think we need to see more companies go through um, the process where they've scaled uh, and then those people can go to other companies and we're starting to see that now with you know, the zeros and the push pace and the VINs and the like. Um, but we just need more of it, I think. Um, and also just those success stories can be told that will then hopefully you know, encourage someone else to go and start their own business and that's how you start to create um, a, a much more Vibrant economy uh, and ecosystem, I think, around that startup um, and technology industry, uh, because again, most people don't even understand how uh, employee share options work, uh, and it's a great chance again to extend uh, people's uh, wealth um, and get them really invested into companies themselves.
5: Thanks for your time, Phil Thompson.
8: Thanks for that.
9: Fisher and Paykel Healthcare investors have had a bit of a reality check after getting carried away earlier this year on the company's future prospects after its COVID surge in demand. Fiona Rotherham joins me now to talk about the company's outlook. Kia ora, Fiona. Hello. So why did investors get over exuberant about F&P Healthcare's share price?
5: Well, the share price has been on a bit of a downhill slide. Um, it had a high of uh, thirty-seven, sixty-eight in August twenty twenty, when it became apparent that, you know, its nasal high flow therapy was the sort of frontline defence for COVID during the pandemic, and they were pumping out those machines, and the market got really excited. But then um, the price started dropping um, from that twenty-one billion dollar valuation. It's now trading around twenty-four dollars, which is, you know, a marked difference—fourteen billion valuation. Um, But then it had a rally earlier this year, around January. The company came out and gave, you know, um, good guidance on where this year was going because it's been a bit difficult to see what that uh, post-COVID demand was going to be like. So the market went a bit crazy. The share price sort of ramped up 20% and, and it got to sort of silly multiples of 50 times forward earnings, which really isn't justified on the fundamentals or, you know, relative to its peers. It's quite out of whack. So there was a bit of froth there in the market. And then when the company announced its result last week, you know, the reality hit home because mm. um, they lifted that veil on what that post-COVID world was going to look like. And that led to, you know, a pretty sharp share price fall and, and analysts re-rating the stock back to sort of more realistic levels.
9: Okay, so, so what was it about the uh, results that they mentioned that were the sort of the reality check?
5: Well the result itself was fine, um, it was in line with expectation, they did have a 34% drop, drop in uh, net profit to around 250 mil and um, you know operating revenue was down around 6% to uh, 1.58 billion uh, when you, which is you still good right, for 1.58 billion for a Kiwi company is pretty impressive but um, you know the, the outlook was the bit that, that really spoke the market, so the company's sort of seemed to be trying to steer the market back to reality. And so you had CEO Lewis Graydon saying, "Um, look, you know, operating margins are going to contract this financial year rather than expand. And the market had been expecting the steady return to the sort of gross margins that, that enjoyed pre-COVID so, at least. but uh, So that that was a real sort of um, check for them. Its guidance on net profit after tax for, for this financial year is actually lower than what it achieved in, in FY20. And that's despite, you know, revenue growing markedly over those four years, 35%. So there's a bit of a, oh, hang on, it's underperforming on margins. Mm-hmm. And the company said it's gonna take them three to four years to get back to the sort of gross margins the market had been expecting. So, you know, investors had thought that was going to happen a lot faster.
9: So what areas are they identifying for growth in the future then?
5: Well Forsyth Bar analyst um, Matt Montgomery um, said one of the reasons FPH has delivered you know, such good returns for investors over many years has been its focus on product innovation and it's stepped up R&D now to 11% of revenue, which is pretty high by Kiwi standards. So it's saying it needs to spend more to make more, so to keep that sort of level of growth in a bigger company you've, you've got to step it up and so at the moment it's spending more which it's hoping to leverage on later. Um, it's a Vora full mask is doing really well in the US market. It launched there last year. It's got a new Evo um, mask, which has just got FDA approval, but uh, that might take a while to filter through to, to the results. One of the big areas though, um, the, the company's identified as anaesthesia. It started selling two products into anaesthetists rather than surgeons in hospitals for use on patients after surgery. And that's had really good traction in the new apps consumable um, revenue it produced. It was around 5%. Now um, Stephen Ridgewell from Craig's estimates that the total addressable market for that just in North America, Europe and Australasia could be around 500 million a year. so it's a sizable target market for it um, which you know could help uh, lift that lift it towards those targets it's seeking mm.
9: Mm-hmm. Do you think it's on track or could be on track to, to meet those uh, those revenue targets?
5: Short answer, no. Long answer, um, you know, it's it's delivered in the past on those. It's got, it's got a target of um, doubling its revenue every five to six years, which you know is a pretty good target. Um, and it's but the harder the bigger you are, the harder that gets, right? Um, I think that that's a twelve percent compound annual growth rate. Um, analysts are picking that it's more likely to be around ten percent over the next few years. Um, and so it's going to get close, but probably not close enough as, as what investors are looking for. Um, you know, they've had good success in commercialising their products. They're a Kiwi icon for a reason, but they're facing, um, you know, they've got to get a renewed focus on margins. Um, they've got more competition. But, I, I you know, I think they'll do well. It's just a question of how soon they can hit those targets again. But uh, I think they're up for the challenge.
9: I think also you know, you can't really predict when there's going to be another pandemic or or something like when they're in in the healthcare sector.
5: Well, COVID hasn't disappeared, right? I mean, there's still some demand. But this is the first time the company's come out and said, we see, uh, you know, a return to normal, really, that Mm. we're progressing towards that. So they're kind of dampening down expectation, really.
9: Great. Well, thanks for your insights, Fiona.
5: Thank you.
7: Time for this week's Economy Matters with MBR columnist Christoph Schumacher.
10: So, Christoph, uh, Adrian Orr and Grant Robertson friends or foes? Well, good question. Um, given the recent statements made by Adrian Orr after the OCR announcement, it seems like they are not just friends but best buddies. Um, if we look at the setup between government and an independent reserve bank, maybe there should be something slightly less than that. Mm. In what ways are they friends right now? Well, the... Objective and the role of the Reserve Bank is to provide monetary stability and keep inflation back to that 1-3% limit. We are sitting at 67 so way too high. And that's why the Reserve Bank Governor is increasing uh, the OCR. But at the same time, the Finance Minister has just released the budget that indicates more and more spending and borrowing. So that's why there are some issues uh, on the table. Um, it seems like uh, the Finance Minister is that kind of a shopaholic who goes out and mixes out the credit card and the Reserve Bank Governor should really come and cut the card in half and, and say, uh, and reel it in. So you were taken aback by his comments saying uh, the government was more of a friend than a foe? Absolutely. Uh, because. Countries all around the world have created independent reserve banks to ensure that they are the gatekeeper of monetary policy, that they keep an eye on government spending. So when the finance minister increases expenditure and borrowing by about 20 billion and ask the reserve bank to, to issue or buy bonds, then you would actually think that they should be kind of foes and Adrian Orr would be be shocked rather than come out and say uh, all good uh, this won't impact on inflation.
7: You're also saying that the Reserve Bank is no longer
10: as independent as it used to be? Absolutely, because Last, just last year, uh, the original act that established the Reserve Bank was, was changed and, and replaced. And the Reserve Bank now has a governance board rather than being a single decision maker. And this government board, the people, the members on that board are actually appointed on the recommendation of the finance minister. So clearly there is more inf- governmental influence on the Reserve Bank now than there used to be. Mm.
7: You're also saying there needs to be some kind of coordination between fiscal policy and monetary
10: policy, though. Absolutely. We don't want the Reserve Bank Governor and the Finance Minister to be foes because there should be some coordination. If the government, for example, as we've seen during the COVID uh, crisis, wants to kickstart the economy by spending money we don't want the Reserve Bank to increase interest rates because that would be counterproductive and at the same time if the Reserve Bank believes it needs to increase the money supply then we don't want government uh, to increase taxes again it would be counterproductive so there should be some form of coordination uh, to make sure the well-being of the economy is, is, is there and looked after and what concerns do you have if they are overly friendly well at the moment, the increase of the OCR, the last increase by 0.25%, wasn't the surprising part. What was the surprising part is that Adrian Orr pointed out that this probably is the peak of the OCR, uh, and we might see reductions in the later part of 24, And that 5.5% was sort of that magic number initially on the table uh, a year or so ago, but things have changed. We've had a cyclone um, that has damaged the economy, that has put inflationary pressure on prices. We are expecting immigration to peak again and 100,000 new people arriving in the country. So the situation has changed. So I'm surprised that we still believe the 5.5% is that upper limit. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. Most welcome.
0: And that's been this week's People and Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.